Okay, well, welcome back to the show, Jeff. Thank you. So today's topic, how do we deal with your highly appreciated position? You yeah. got all of the risk and you think all of the reward, but what's ahead of us, right? So why don't you kind of take us out, Jeff, and, and tell us first, you know, how does this happen? What's some background for your typical investor that finds himself in this position? Well, I think that you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, we're, we're right on the edge of Silicon Valley here uh, in our Northern California offices. We also have offices right in the heart of it in San Jose. So we oftentimes find people that work for an extended time period working for one company for a very long time. They accumulate stock. And if that company is successful, and presumably if they've been at that company for an extended time period, it is then they run into a situation where a lot of their net worth is tied up in just their employer stock. And obviously, you know, you, you live by the sword, die by the sword in those kind of situations. I mean, you're, you're getting your income from a company, you're getting a lot of your net worth from the company. Uh, in some cases, people even put it into their 401k plans in order to, uh, to try to get even extra. But oftentimes it's as a result of, you know, employee stock purchase programs, or a incentives or restricted stock units, those types of things where people will accumulate quite a bit of net worth all in one security. Now let's kind of walk it back though. I mean, one uh, would be forgiven for asking, now hold on guys, like is that really a problem? <laughs> it definitely falls under the category of first world problems, right? Because yeah, if absolutely. you've done well, then then why not do better, I think yeah. is the common response. No question about it. I mean, if you look at some of the, the largest net worth people out there, uh, between Jeff Bezos from Amazon, you've got Bill Gates with Microsoft, Larry Ellison comes to mind with Oracle. You've got a number of people out there that have made tremendous, tremendous net worths in one company. I would remove someone like Warren Buffett from that equation because obviously Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate of or a basket of a number of stocks that are within it that change over a period of time. So mm -hmm. Warren Buffett's net worth, while well, it's increased by the, the shares of ownership of, of a company, that company is an investment company. So we'll, we'll remove him out of the equation, but say, you know, let's use someone like Bill Gates as a, a, mm -hmm. a perfect example. I mean, yeah. uh, just got bypassed as the richest person in the world. Um, but one of the reasons Who why he, he got bypassed by uh, Jeff Bezos, Bezo oh, that Amazon. right? Yeah. So the, the Amazon guy eclipsed the Microsoft guy. Exactly. Sign so the times okay. old, old tech versus new tech. But I mean, one of the things you can look at is look at when Microsoft peaked in the late nineties and mm -hmm. it took until May of, uh, of 2017 or 16, I'm sorry, before Microsoft actually went back above. Uh, where it was uh, back at the highs of the late uh, 1990s. Mm -hmm. So you went through almost a two-decade time period where there was no accumulation of wealth by having your ownership stuck in one company. Wow. So it's a live by the sword, die by the sword. As I said earlier, I mean, it's it's obviously a first world problem. He's obviously a multi-multi-billionaire. Uh, I don't think that there's going to be many listeners on this show that are going to break out a handkerchief and uh, wipe the tears from their eyes uh, at why uh, Warren Buffett, uh, I'm sorry, Bill Gates had to sit there and wait 15 years to start making tremendous net worth again. Uh, but this is an issue if you are an investor or you're an employee of a company that's been successful. The age-old question is, when does the game of musical chairs end? Mm -hmm. When should you be looking to diversify yourself uh, and how? Okay. Uh, and so that's really kind of the the empathis of, of today's uh uh, podcast is really talking about that. Okay, so walk me through this. So I'm working at Microsoft. It's 1998. Everything's going 
spectacularly well for me. And then what? Then the, then the, the dot-com crash happens, and, and then does the stock fall off immediately? I think Microsoft... Well, Microsoft's case, yes. I mean, it, it got really browbeat over the uh, the next two years of the dot-com era. It lost about two-thirds of its value, and it took uh, forever for it to kind of fight its way back up. It really wasn't until after the financial crisis that it really kind of started to make uh, any kind of headway back the right direction. I mean, even in the recovery in, in 2003, 2004, 2005, Microsoft really didn't do much. So really, I mean, when you're when you're that employee, when you're looking at this situation and you're looking at, you know, what to do with your, uh, your own employee stock, I mean, you may not be an insider, but oftentimes the people that work at a company know the company better than even the financial analysts covering it on Wall Street. So what would it take to be an insider? Because I've actually had this conversation a few times. John, I think, I think I'm an insider, but I think you have to be really clear about what that constitutes. Right. Well, your company will most likely have already told you if you're going to be subject to blackout periods and so right. on you're considered to be an insider. An insider is really anybody that is subject to information that the public wouldn't know on its own. Okay. So if you're a sales manager, for example, and you know the sales that are going on uh, within your company, that obviously analysts on Wall Street would salivate to have, that's insider information. So you know, you, you're always able to sit there and talk to your financial advisor about the impacts of these types of things and worry about whatever uh, we're allowed to listen to and talk about insider information. We're just not allowed to act upon it. So mm-hmm. uh, having somebody that comes to you and says, hey, I'm not sure if this is insider or not, it's not like you have to cover your ears and do earmuffs or anything along those lines. You're more than welcome to sit there and hear them out and talk to them. It's just obviously, uh, you know, we have safeguards within our firm in order to make sure that there's never anybody that's acting upon insider information uh, to make it be a financial benefit for themselves. Got it. So you're saying that I should maybe be thinking, especially if I know that I'm an insider and I have a huge concentrated position, I should be thinking about some ways that I can start to take some chips off the table. I've been successful. So strategies. Well, here's what I would throw out. I mean, if you're really, really, really confident. And I mean, really confident that your stock is going to continue to go up, keep it. I mean, that's strategy number one. If you have Mm -hmm. that confidence and knowledge that the next year, two years, three years, the the outlook of your company is fantastic. The trajectory of the stock is going all the right directions. You know, there's, there's the age old, don't keep all your eggs in one basket. Well, the wealthiest people in this country have done the exact opposite. They keep all their eggs in one basket and watch it closely. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong with having a concentrated stock position. We're not here to sit there and say that it's the right thing to diversify in all cases. What we're saying is be careful because there are just as many ugly examples of companies that have really high values that no longer have those values. And if you had not diversified yourself out, you would not be uh, there. They would be financially damaged by that pullback. Mm-hmm. And then there's the examples that we just rattled off of, you know, the the Bill Gates of the world that have made billions upon billions, keeping their money all on their company stock. Personally, you know, kind of somewhere maybe halfway in between would make the most amount of sense. So Jeff, I kind of have a question. Then it occurs to me you're coming to me in 1998. I'm invested in Microsoft. Maybe after the the uh, the dot com crash, I'm I'm still asking. Well, you know, everything went down the tubes during that period of time. Um, what good did it do me? Right, I got out of Microsoft. 
was there something better? What was your oh, idea? Absolutely, there was something better. I mean, the, the dot-com bubble bursting was all about growth companies and all about international companies. If you were in a large-cap value company, for example, it broke even. If you were in small-cap or mid-cap value, you made almost 30% from high of market to low of market. So there are oftentimes places to go and hide or go play defense and not have the same sort of downside, not lose two thirds mm -hmm. of the value of your company's stock. Mm -hmm. And then presumably, and what we do often here is a bunch of if-thens. Mm -hmm. So it's all about being prepared. So great, you've got your concentrated Microsoft stock, it's the 90s, the stock's going up in value, it's going up in value, it's going up in value. Well, maybe what we need to do is have something in place that says, hey, if it starts to pull back and pulls back more than 15%, then we start taking some of those chips off the table like you were talking about. Got it. So rather than sitting there being all in or all out, an extreme of, of fortune or, or watching your fortune you know, right underneath your feet, maybe there's some middle ground that's involved with that. Interesting. So you start to t sort of take yourself out of the situation. But you do it kind of gradually. You well, don't put all of your yourself towards the thing that's made you great. Uh, there, there's lots of different ways of doing it, and I don't know that there's necessarily a right way. We don't have tomorrow's newspaper, which makes uh, being able to give great advice or perfect advice uh, impossible. But really, again, if you have all the confidence in the world, keep your stock. Where we find it really interesting is when we meet with somebody and they're they're unsure which direction their stock's going to go, because again. If it's going straight up, keep it. If it's going straight down, get out of it. And mm -hmm. we'll go into some of the ways of being able to get out of the stock. Those are pretty clear decisions. The, the most challenging one is, hey, I'm really not sure. So there is a very sophisticated way of, of being able to diversify your stock, which kind of caps the upside and also protects you to the downside. I, I, I do want to visit one, one quick point, though, real, really quickly, is, is if you are completely convinced then there's a whole other set of questions that you maybe want to start addressing, right? If you are 100% on any investment idea, you might want to second guess that. Just stop and think for a minute. Well, How we can often, you be 100%? Yeah, we oftentimes uh, uh, talk about uh, uh, people's personal biases behind it and oftentimes talk about diversifying from themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you may have the best ideas on the face of the planet, but you're obviously, all of us come into any investment in life with a bias. Right. So, yes, if you're working there and you're 100% certain, yeah, you may want to uh, second guess that 100% certainty because, as we all know, nothing in life is certain. Okay, sure. Just, just wanted to put that out there. I see that more often than anything. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what the stock is going to do. No, you don't. You, you don't know. Um, as much as you think that you might, there is always a random effect that might happen out there in the world. So, anyway, so there's some techniques. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, let's take that one last step further, which is oftentimes some of the biggest companies in the S&P 500 uh, and in the NASDAQ have performed the worst. And so let's talk about maybe why that happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about somebody like Apple, for example, how many more phones can they sell? How many more tablets? How many more computers? What market are they going to break into in <laughs> order to show a earnings trajectory that would deem you know worthy of being one of the largest companies in the world so that's where you start to see it there's actually a lot of statistical proof we have a very interesting chart uh, that shows what happens to the largest company in the S&P 500 compared to the S&P 500's performance and it's severe severe underperformance mm -hmm. so I think what you're pointing out is, is as a company grows it also evolves and it changes but and it also kind of dominates that market within which 
it, it was so successful. So there's kind of a there's a there's a tipping point where it maxes out and it can't go much larger. At Although the in Apple's case, we're kind of <laughs> it's a dangerous uh, the, the conversation, right? Because it has continued to excel. And so that is a question we're all kind of wondering is this how much further can it go? And it seems to be wanting to go further. Well, and I think that in the case of Apple, I mean, that's that's for a one-on-one -on -one discussion rather than a podcast to sit there and go through uh, the pros and cons of that. Right. So that's where I would definitely advise uh, any listener to reach out to their Polaris Greystone Wealth Advisor. Uh, if you don't have one here, uh, reach out to John directly and uh, set a time for uh, you to talk to him specifically about that stock and what the impact might be of Apple to uh, someone's net worth. Right. Well, we were talking about the... What if you don't know? And uh, really, there is a, a very interesting uh, synthetic. You know, so we're talking about something that you can't do on your own, um, mechanism in which you can diversify your portfolio uh, and put off the taxes. And it's called a variable prepaid forward contract. And mm -hmm. if anybody has ever heard of the, the phrase collaring a position, this is essentially what you're doing. But what you're doing is you're selling calls and you're buying puts on a security. So let's say that you have a $100 security, you're selling a, a call, so you, let's say it's at $110, mm -hmm. in order to pay for the put at say $90, there has to be a 20% variance between the call and the put. Otherwise, the IRS basically deems for it to be a riskless investment and essentially calls it a constructive sale. And okay. so what we want to be looking at there is there has to be enough variance and movement between the call and the put. So if you owned a stock at 100 and you weren't sure which direction it was going, you would be protected dollar for dollar if it went under $90 with the put that you purchased. Mm -hmm. But you would also be limited to only seeing that stock rise another 10% up to $110. And anything above that, whoever you saw, sold the call to would presumably call it away from you in that situation so you're selling the potential you're, you're selling the ability from somebody to to buy it from you at a stated price so it's worth 10 somebody can buy it for 12 regardless of how high it goes so you're capping your potential growth but then you're also buying an insurance policy that's right? exactly right so you're okay. paying for the insurance by giving up the upside and then what people do is they'll actually borrow against their shares in order to diversify it. So if you have XYZ share, it's worth $100 a share, you sell calls, you know, again, you're selling the upside potential, you're giving that away at 110 in order to buy the insurance that says XYZ stock, if it goes below 90, you're gonna get that insurance payment for everything under 90, and then you're borrowing up to 85% of the value of the stock, and then using that to diversify. Okay. So if you had, I don't know, let's just say that you had $2 million in XYZ stock, you could pull out $1.7 million, have that money being managed, and have that money grow for you. So you've given the upside and, and protected the downside, but then you need to take that money and have it diversified and have that work for you. Okay, if you're listening to this now and you would actually like me to draw a picture for you, as Jeff said, you're more than welcome to reach out. This is one of those deals where right, drawing a picture can be very helpful. I usually draw a little worm, and it looks like a skinny little worm with a big collar around it. It can't go outside of those bounds. Uh, but definitely, That's exactly little, right. Yeah. This is definitely one that's uh, a little bit harder to envision without sitting in front of somebody and doing it. Just realize that essentially what you're able to do in the situation is put your tax event out upwards of five years, and you're giving up upside, and you're also protecting to the downside, and then you're diversifying by borrowing money against the portfolio 
typically at LIBOR and, and a half, LIBOR and a quarter, uh, depends on, on what's going on uh, when you're actually making that borrowing Got it. Uh, time period. So that's kind of the, what do you do if you don't know what to do? Again, right. like we said, I mean, if, if you know the stock's going up, you're going to hold it. If you know it's going down, you want to get out of it. And there are several ways of getting out of it in a very intelligent fashion. Um, and really, you know, we've got three main ones that we've seen people do. Uh, the first one that we would, uh, you know, kind of like to introduce is a thing called a 10B51. So this is for your insider, right? That's exactly right. I was going to go back to that exact subject. So the person that's in the know, or if they're not 100% sure, they need to go back to HR and make sure they understand. This is essentially creating, uh, I think most of our listeners know what dollar cost averaging is when you're buying into something. This is the exact opposite. You've gone to the SEC and said, I've got 100,000 shares of XYZ and I want to get out of it over the next year. So therefore, I'm going to sit there and take, well, let's make it 120,000 to make the math simple. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take 10,000 shares per month and systematically sell on the 15th of that month or whatever the nearest Monday is of that. And it's systematic selling so that you're no longer in control of what's going on within the shares. You can't act upon what's going on within those shares Got and it. so on. So it allows so the for you. there is, is you know what's on the corporate calendar and you know what impact that might have on the stock price. This prevents you from trying to game that calendar. So you can't say, ah, <laughs> I know that there's a meeting coming up. Three weeks from now, we're gonna announce the sale of the firm. I'll sell right before that happens. Well, it's, that's exactly right. I mean, obviously, you know, in most corporations for, for people that are insiders, uh, there's really about a month out of every quarter that they even have an opportunity to sell the stock. Uh, there's a month on the front end, there's a month on the back end of whenever they're reporting their earnings. And because of that, they have very limited opportunity to get out of their corporate shares. Mm -hmm. So this is one mechanism of them being able to do that. Um, obviously, when company officers start to sell shares, uh, that can also be a negative sign for investors. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is something that they should be aware that that is going to be public that they mm -hmm. are selling their shares versus something like the very prepaid forward contract that we mm -hmm. just got done where there would be absolutely no uh, knowledge of anybody knowing that you were diversifying out of your own corporate stock. Very nice. Okay. Well, that makes sense. This is a way of taking the, uh, uh, taking the, the potential for abuse um, out of the hands of individuals that have insider information that makes total sense that's exactly right and then again this would be a situation where you're not 100 percent certain which direction it's going but you're pretty confident that you want to be out of the stock so you're going to take a extended time period to get out of it rather than saying you know what i'm done i'm selling all 120,000 shares and i've got my month window open and i'm done uh, so you are taking a time period to get out of it in order to get it through those blackout periods and being able to sell in months that you typically wouldn't be able to by being systematic. Yeah. So this dovetails nicely with another one, which might appear within the retirement plan. Since we're talking about selling closely held shares, this often also shows up um, at the same time as the NUA strategy, which is one that I pointed out to you right before we got on to the, uh, the podcast. It's another way, right, of basically selling the stock. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely something that would be more of somebody at retirement age, much right. more so than let's say that you're in your 40s or 50s and you're, a, again, a, a person of control and you want to get out of it. But somebody at retirement, you know, a, a great example, there were a lot of people that made a tremendous amount of money in UPS, for example. Mm -hmm. And so you saw people that were 
truck drivers or you know somebody that was in the warehouse or whatever else that accumulated a tremendous amount of their net worth and oftentimes what they had done is they'd taken the company stock and put it into the retirement account as well and and this is a way for them to be able to pull those shares out of a 401k plan and be able to essentially diversify themselves so well, it's a big it's a big tax uh, you're basically trying to get some control over the tax effect of this right because i That's think exactly that the problem right. with with all this great wealth that you're amassing in your ira is is there's a big tax bill due once you start to take that out later on right so the nua kind of gets around that in a way sure so if you were a retiree from ups and you had stock in your 401k plan or your you moved it into an ira rollover or whatever and and you sold all your shares there to diversify yourself and you started to withdraw money from that that's all ordinary income 100 percent ordinary income if you're at retirement and you do the net unrealized appreciation you actually pull the shares out of your 401k plan it goes into a taxable account your cost basis is treated as ordinary income which makes sense i mean Big deal but let's say that you have a $20 cost basis and the stock's worth 100, you're paying ordinary income only on that $20. The 80 that it had appreciated, that's all long-term capital gains and you're not in a position where you're paying ordinary income on all of it, which you mm -hmm. would do had you done it my first example. Right, which is kind of common, isn't it? I mean, if you've been working for a truck uh, as a truck driver for 30 years, you might or might not have a massive tax effect on yeah. those. I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's across the board and I don't care it's uh, of, who you are very few people understand this particular example that we're using i don't care if you're the ceo of ups or uh the truck driver that's been there for 30 years most people don't get that advice to actually take advantage of the net unrealized appreciation in their 401k plan and save themselves in some cases hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference between being in a 15 or 20 percent capital gains tax rate versus mm -hmm. being in the 37 percent fed yeah that, I mean, that's so, a lot of money i mean that's that's the highest obviously ordinary income rate versus the highest capital gain rate of being 20. so you could save yourself you know 50 on your taxes just by doing this on the appreciated portion of that stock so since we're talking esoteric strategies that are kind of special case uh strategies i, I see you've got exchange funds here as well now that's a tough one i mean i have not even done this one to be fully honest yet but it's of significant value. In I've some done cases. it with a couple of clients, and it's it's definitely been a few years since uh, I've done it. But uh, uh, there are certainly uh, there are a, a few firms out there that specialize in it. We have access to those firms and can certainly help anybody in the situation if this is one that that comes to mind. But essentially, what you're doing is you're taking your shares and you're throwing them into a big basket with a bunch of other people that have the same situation that you have. And essentially what goes on with an exchange fund is as long as you leave those shares in the exchange fund for up to five years, you are able to then, after five years, take shares of the entire basket. So you now have a diversified portfolio. Now you keep the basis. So let's say that you have a million dollars worth of, we were using Apple, so you've got a million dollars worth of Apple stock and you own it, let's just say that you own it for $10,000. So you have a $990,000 capital appreciation within that stock. You hold it, you put it into the exchange fund, you keep it in the exchange fund for five years. Your value, your million dollars, goes up in value with a full basket. So the risk that you take is that Apple would grow faster than 
the basket of underlying shares. You actually get to see that basket in advance of doing the final say of, yes, I'm going to do it. There's a, a one-week time period in which you can actually have a free look through to all the securities that are in it. Uh, and there's typically 50, 60, 70 securities in it. So it's not like you're just betting on a couple, but let's just say that you, after five years, wanted to take the basket, you'd be able to take typically 20, 30 different stocks out and you'd still have the $10,000 cost basis on all the 30 stocks. You basically mm-hmm. would prorate that $10,000 cost basis amongst the 30 different stocks that you had. Okay. But I, but I diversified though. And you've diversified and case, you have 30 stocks. Okay. And did, there's did no I capital gains. There wasn't a capital gains event. There was not okay, a taxable gain event until you actually sell it. Now, here are some of the caveats. If you get out before the five-year time period, let's say that Apple doubles and the exchange fund doesn't do a thing. You get your original money back. You get the value of the exchange fund, not the value of what you put it in. Okay. So there's no So it's the lesser there. of, mm-hmm. let's say that Apple loses money and the exchange fund makes money and you want out before the five years, they're going to give you your original shares back. Mm-hmm. So your million might be now worth 800000 and that's what you're going to get back rather than if the exchange fund was worth $1.3 million, you'd lose $500,000 getting out early. Right. You've got to be willing to make a five-year commitment to this or to make any sense for you whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's a, that's a long-term planning instrument um, is, is what it essentially is. And going in, you're going to have to be real clear uh, that this is a stock that you're willing to let it go um, and become part of the, you know, part of the fund. Yeah, you're letting it go, and you, you certainly are not needing any of the resources from that stock for at least a five-year time period until you can actually start getting the diversification uh, from it. it. Now, CRT. We're we're getting a little long into this, but I think this is great information. CRT stands for what? That's charitable? Charitable Remainder Trust. And so what we're really looking at here is uh, somebody that is uh, wanting to put their shares into a charitable remainder trust. They're able to then sell. So let's go back to our same Apple example. You've got a million dollars in Apple. Mm -hmm. You got $10,000 cost basis on it. You put your million dollars of Apple into a charitable remainder trust. And when you sell it, there's no taxes. Right. The proceeds, 10% of the proceeds at your passing need to go on to the charity of your choice. That's mm-hmm. the remainder trust. So they're saying at the end of this trust, the, the remainderment of this needs to go on to charities uh, and it needs to be a minimum of 10% of the original value. So 100,000 of this has to go on to charity. Mm-hmm. But what oftentimes people will do is they will take proceeds from the charitable remainder trust. They can draw an income off of it. Or uh, it's oftentimes paired with a thing called an irrevocable life insurance trust, mm-hmm. where part of the proceeds will go to pay for a second-to-die life insurance policy if it's a husband and wife, or just a regular life insurance policy if it's just one person who wants to pass this money on to the next generation. They'll buy a life insurance policy, keep it off to the side, replace the million dollars that we just went into charity. You basically avoid all the capital gains. So in this case, you would uh, be avoiding about $180,000 worth of taxes and having all of that money working for you and having some of the proceeds pay for an insurance policy that would go to your heirs. So it's a pretty sophisticated way of being able to, again, pass on money, uh, do it in the most tax advantaged way. And as you were saying before about the variable prepaid forward contract, again, this is another good one for a drawing. 
where you have a box for the charitable remainder trust, <laughs> yeah. another box for the uh, the irrevocable life insurance trust going down to the next generation. John's a very good drawer. He'd be happy to take you through it. But uh, again, it's a little bit more uh, sophisticated way of, of being able to diversify yourself without having all the tax ramifications that go into it. Yeah, I mean, again, these are so highly specialized, but like a lot of specialized tools, it can be the make or break deal, right? I mean, if you don't have a, a level and you're putting up a shelf, I can't think of all the jobs that require a level. Maybe it's a little bit more common, but you know, there are some instruments that you must have, but only when you must have them. And these can be make or break uh, tools in the right situation. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we truly, truly uh, pride ourselves here at Polaris Greystone is adding tremendous value to our clients. Uh, obviously, uh, as the chief investment officer of the firm, I know that we do that tremendously in the investment management, but oftentimes it can be completely overshadowed by the wealth management team and bringing some of these more sophisticated tools to our clients that can save them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars of their net worth just by doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, this is pretty great stuff. We're getting up against a half hour. Good stuff, though. I think you'll be listening to this right to the very end if you need any of this information. Anything else before we get going, Jeff? No, I, I, again, th these are all, you know, a harder things to conceptualize, especially as you're driving home uh, in your commute or anything else of that nature. So my biggest advice is sit down with a, a wealth advisor uh, here at Polaris Greystone. Let us walk through uh, the pros and cons of what what can happen with your highly concentrated stock. And we'd be happy to sit there and show you ways to avoid as much of the taxes as possible in very legal ways. Mm -hmm. Let's play some, uh, some Pictionary, in other words. Exactly. I like it. All right, Jeff, thanks again for coming in. My pleasure. Have a great time. All right. You too. Bye now. Polaris Greystone Financial Group LLC is a federally registered investment advisor. The information, statements, and opinions expressed in this material are provided for general information only and are subject to change without notice. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, is not intended as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security, and is not intended as individual or specific advice. It should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. Polaris Greystone does not offer legal or tax advice. All information contained herein is believed to be accurate, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Polaris Greystone Financial Group, LLC, and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Diversification does not assure a profit or protect against loss. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Polaris Greystone Financial Group, LLC, unless a client service agreement is in place.